Good morning, church family. My name is Amy Ware. Please turn in your Bibles with me to our passage, Exodus 32, 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people." Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's great to be with you all today. Um, We continue our series here in Exodus 32, and and this very uh, powerful and very important story in so many ways really covers a lot of the themes uh, that we have been talking about, looking at um, over the past many weeks that we have been in this study few things that I want to look at with you today um, that I think are very powerful in the passage. Number one is the inclination of the human heart, or the inclinations of the human heart. Number two, the jealous love of God. And then number three, the power of a redeemer. Let's begin with the inclinations of the human heart, the inclinations of our heart. What are our hearts like? We can learn a lot about that in this story. You know, there's been some studies recently about the relationship between disaster or crisis and material things. And a lot of these were done during COVID. What does kind of a crisis in the air, a disaster, a difficult time, how does that kind of interact with how people understand material things or money or wealth or how they spend or use their money? And there was a lot of these, these studies have shown that people, that there's definitely a correlation. 
Um, so a lot of times in moments of crisis, we certainly saw this during COVID, people go out and buy things, right? They go out and buy a new house or they buy a new car or they buy that 85-inch TV that they have been wanting. Other people saved, right? Other people's like, okay, I'm gonna stash as much money as possible away. I wanna make sure it's there for a rainy day. I wanna have security in my savings. Other people took advantage and said, well, this is a time to invest. This is a time to get invested for another time. But it definitely had a, it definitely had a correlation, a response that didn't, people didn't just continue acting normally with their money. There was definitely a big change that happened during COVID. And a lot of times when there's hurricanes or other disasters, there's some sort of correlation between how people understand materialism and crises in the world. And the, the, the psychology of it is obviously comfort. When people are in a crisis mode, when people uh, are feeling some sort of discomfort, when people are feeling some sort of uh, pain, they're, it's, they want to buy something. They want to have a bunch of money in the bank. They want to make sure that they can save a bunch of money. Um, you know, I, I, things are in the world are going crazy right now, but at least I got this new car. Or things are, the world are going crazy right now, but I bought this huge house. I moved outside of the city. I got that TV. All of that will make me feel better. All of that will comfort me. You know, we've talked a lot about the, the self-justifying impulse that we all have. We, we want something that will justify us, but we also have this self-assuring impulse. It's, it's very similar. I want to be assured that I'm going to be okay. When you get hurt, when someone cuts you down, when someone's cruel to you and you get left out, when there's a crisis in the air, what is it that comforts you? What is it that makes you feel good? What is, what is it that reassures you? What is, what is it that, that makes you feel like I'm okay? You can say, okay, well, I still have this money in the bank. You know, I still have, I just I have this 85 inch TV and now I can watch my favorite football team and that will make me feel better. What is it that assures you? What is it that comforts you? Now, of course, this, this idea manifests itself in more than just material things. It's, uh, I just mentioned watching football. It's the reason people are into things like football. It's the reason that people are into politics. It's the reason that people are into these larger movements. We, we have this impulse to attach ourselves to something big, something large, something that will assure us, something that will make us feel strong, something that will comfort us, something that will give us a sense of security, and identity. Now, there's a reason that you have that impulse. There's a reason I have that impulse. And it's that we were made, you were made, I was made, we were created from the beginning to worship God. So this impulse that you all have to want to attach yourself to something, to want to be reassured, to want to be comforted, especially in times of crisis, it's actually the worship impulse that you have. And the right manifestation of it is to worship the Lord. The right manifestation when you've been put down, when you are in a crisis, when you've been cut off, when you feel discomforted, when you feel like I need to justify myself, I need to assure myself, is actually to worship the living God. It's, it's actually to, to connect yourself further to the Lord. But so often we don't find our rest in the Lord. We find our rest in things. We find our rest in our bank account. We find our rest in money. We find our rest in some kind of idol. And John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And, and what Calvin's getting at here is, is what I'm talking about, this, this impulse, this need to attach ourselves to something, to worship something, to attach ourselves to something that is 
stronger than us, that can comfort us, that can make us feel big. Now, the question you should be asking is, yeah, okay, why don't we do that with the Lord? (laughs) If that's how we were made, what's the problem? Why do we struggle to do that with the Lord? And I think this story is really helpful. Oftentimes, God, the Almighty, he can seem too big. He can seem too scary. He seems too distant. He's not tangible enough, right? We can't do anything to control him. And so we like things like money or career or relationships or reputations. We like making things, these things ultimate. Why? Because we have some sense of control, right? We are in control of them. We can, do, we can do something that makes the money bigger or the career better or the relationship stronger. We can do something to make these things that we look to to assure our hearts all the better. Oftentimes, Jesus doesn't work in our modern culture, right? It, he's not <laughs> looking to him for assurance. It, it doesn't really fly when people around you don't recognize the assurance he gives, when they don't recognize that he's actually the Lord, right? Sometimes we live in a very materialistic world, right? A very stuff-centered world. Well, Jesus doesn't always fly with that, right? And so oftentimes what we do, the same thing that they're doing here is we kind of take this idea of Jesus that we know is good and we, we kind of create a, a, a little idol with the Jesus label on it. We, we take something that we, we know that will give us comfort from the world around us and we kind of attach Jesus to it. The real Jesus isn't materialistic enough. And so we create a prosperity Jesus, a Jesus that actually exists to make you more wealthy because that's where your comfort really lies. The real Jesus is, he isn't strict enough, right? And so we create a legalistic Jesus because what really gives you comfort is obeying the rules and knowing that the other guy didn't obey the rules. That's how you get justified and that's how you are assured. And so we like a legalistic Jesus. The real Jesus is too strict, right? I don't, I don't like rules. And so we create an antinomian Jesus that just says, just do whatever you want and say a prayer of forgiveness at the end. The real Jesus isn't really up to speed on modern sexual ethics. And so we've created a sexual revolution Jesus, right? A a Jesus that actually celebrates the different ways that people are expressing themselves now, right? Because that's where we get a sense of identity and security. The real Jesus is too concerned with his kingdom that is not of this world. And of course, we're thinking like the kingdom that's not of this world, that's not practical, what is that? We need, we're concerned with the kingdom that is of this world. It's, it's, it's going to, to, you know, it's going to pot, right? We've got to be, uh, we, we need a practical, we need a political Jesus, right? We need Jesus to win this election, to restore us. Don't you see what we do? The real Jesus is too scary. He's too strict or too gracious or too judgmental or too old-fashioned or too progressive or too political or not political enough. And so we create all these little Jesus just like we want him to be, (laughs) just like we think he should be, that gives us a sense of comfort and assurance. I was having lunch one time with uh, another pastor, and we were talking about some of these things, how so oftentimes the teaching of this Bible doesn't fit in with the larger cultural narrative that we live in. And this particular pastor said, look, I just don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so I I want to preach a Christ that's more acceptable. And I said to him, brother, don't you see that you've created an idol? That you've named Jesus? 
Don't you see that you're asking Jesus to conform to the culture or this cultural moment rather than leading the culture, leading your people to trust into the true and living God? You know, I say all of this to say, what am I getting at here? It's easy to read Exodus 32 and say, look at these people. <laughs> What's wrong with them? God had done all this stuff for them. He led them across the sea. There was the plagues. He gave them the commandments. And here they are worshiping a golden calf that they made. What I'm appealing to you is you actually do the exact same thing. And so do I. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. When one idol doesn't work, we just make another and another and another. You know, these people, they were in a crisis. It was worse than COVID. They were in the wilderness. It was a scary place, right? If you, if you, go, to me, uh, if you go to Israel with me next year, we're actually going to Jordan and Egypt too, and we're going to go to the Sinai Peninsula. It's, it's amazing how bad it is. <laughs> it's so barren. I mean, there's nothing out there. It's total desert. That's where they were. They, they had to trust in the Lord to provide for them, to be with them, to care for them. It's a hard place. They had to trust on God's timeline. If you remember last week, we left off Exodus 20. God had given the law. Moses goes up the mountain to go and be with the Lord, right? And all the people were left behind and the people are terrified. They don't want to go where God is. Moses goes and, and he's with the presence of the Lord. That was Exodus 20. We're 12 chapters later, and Moses is still up on the mountain with the Lord. So you can understand the people's unrest. I mean, their leader has gone. They don't even know. He might be dead up there. I mean, the, the last thing they know, he was walking into fire and thunder and lightning. You know, John Calvin said of this passage, he says, they knew that God, it was God whose power they'd experienced, in the miracles, crossing the Red Sea. But they didn't trust that he was near them unless they could discern with their eyes some physical symbol of his countenance. So what do they do? Look at verse one. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us some gods, Right? Give us a God that's practical. Give us a God that we can kind of control, that we can kind of put our hands on here, that will comfort us, who shall go before us. As to this Moses, this guy we've been listening to, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. He might be dead. So Aaron said to them, well, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. Now, what's so interesting about this? What does Aaron use to make the calf? He uses all of this gold that they had. Now, you may say, well, where did they get all this? Like, where did all these uh, people of Israel get? They were slaves in Egypt, right? How did they get all these golden rings? Well, if you remember, God said, I'm gonna free you from Egypt, and while you're leaving Egypt, the Egyptians are gonna spoil you. They're gonna throw their gold at you. Now, that almost seemed ridiculous. We talked about this several weeks ago. That seemed ridiculous that these Egyptians, their slave masters, would, would free them, first of all, but then second of all, would, would spoil them with their wealth, with their gold. But God had done this for them. God had so provided for them that not only had he freed them from slavery, he'd made them rich. And he gave them all this gold they did nothing to earn. And now they're taking all that God had entrusted to them and they're making an idol. And you know, we can do the exact same thing 
what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that's, that hasn't come to you from the Lord? I mean, who here, who here can say, I've totally self-determined my life? Who here can say that? No one can say that. Who, who here had any jurisdiction, any control over where you were born? Who here said that, you know, I, who here said you'd be born in America where you had all these opportunities? Who here, who here determined that you'd probably have some people that taught you a good work ethic, that you could work hard? Who here said all the opportunities that you had along the way, the education, the opportunities, who, who could stand and say, no, I am totally self-determined. No, what do you have that you haven't received? What do you have that you haven't received? And yet we are so prone to take these blessings that the Lord has given us, has entrusted us, and make them ultimate in our lives. There's also something interesting happening in this passage. Look at verse four. It says, Aaron received the gold, and he fashioned it with a graving tool. Notice the author of Exodus is, he wants us to know Aaron had a graving tool. Aaron made the calf. He fashioned with a graving tool, and he made the calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, what's so interesting about this is here the author goes to extra link to say, Aaron fashioned the calf. He made the calf. Now, later in the chapter, we didn't read it, when Moses comes down off the mountain and he confronts Aaron, Aaron doesn't know anything about making a calf. Let me read it to you. It's from verse 21. You want to flip down there with me? Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought so much great sin upon them? Aaron, I left you in charge. And now this great sin, this, this great curse, these people have, have really offended the Lord here. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people, they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. And they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. So notice the first thing that he does in this passage is he takes no ownership of this, right? And he takes zero ownership. Moses says, you know, what have you done? You brought this great sin upon the people. And Aaron doesn't say, yeah, you know, oh gosh, I, I didn't trust the Lord. There's no repentance in his heart. All he does is he says, well, it's their fault. It's the people. You know the people. You know how they are. You know how stiff-necked and horrible they are. And then he comes up with this crazy story about how he took gold, threw it in a fire, and out came a calf. Though, is it so crazy? In ancient times, uh, there was a lot of idol worship. And it was very common for those cultures to believe in the auto-generation of the idol that this would just kind of happen, that idols would just appear, that idols would kind of make themselves. In fact, you see this a lot in a lot of ancient narratives, the auto-generation of, of idols. In fact, Isaiah 44, the prophet Isaiah is basically making fun of all these other cultures for this silly myth of auto-generation. He's saying, don't you see how stupid you are? You made the idol and now you're worshiping it. But it makes sense that they would come up with the auto-generation myth. It makes sense that Aaron would say this because, let's be honest, it is awkward to worship an idol that you just finished making. It is idol. It is awkward. It is strange. It's embarrassing, if you think about it, 
to bow down to a thing that you crafted by your own hands. But that's exactly what idolatry is. It's creating a God you can control. It's creating a God that always does what you want him to do. It's creating a God that always agrees with you. And here's the deal, that is no God at all. That God has no power. That God will only ever be as strong as you are. You're taking this idea of God ultimately to serve yourself. That, that is something that idolatry does. It puts all the power in the hand of the one who created the idol. And it's very easy to do this. And to, and to do exactly what Aaron did here, to make an idol and then put the name Yahweh on it. This is what really got to the Lord. It's very easy to do this, to create an idol and put a Christian label on it. Now, it's common for people to uh, talk about how people do this with politics, right? You want your political agenda to move forward, and so you take part of the Democratic or Republican platform, and you kind of say, well, this is, we're just serving Jesus with this. You put a Christian label, we need a little Jesus, that'll get the folks excited. But it's easy to kind of look at them, oh, those, those politicians, those news companies for doing this, for creating these political idols. But so oftentimes we do the same thing. You know, how many of us, the real thing that drives us is power, it's wealth, we want to have influence. But we can oftentimes, those heart desires, we can oftentimes take those and put a little Christian label on it like, well, I want all this wealth so I can take care of my family. I want all this wealth so I can give more money away. When really, is that really your heart? Is that really why you want all the wealth? Is that really why you want all the influence? So you can serve God more? Is that, is that just the Christian label that you put on it to justify the idol worship? And to continue to serve a calf that you've created an idol that will do you nothing, will do you no good in the day of the Lord. We love these idols that we can control, that promise us to be the center of everything. But I want you to hear this. A real relationship with God is not like that. You can't control God. God will not be formed with a carving stick. If you have a relationship with God, you're not in control. He's in control. He's the sovereign of the universe. It's not about you. You can't manipulate him. He doesn't always work on your schedule. He doesn't always do what you want him to do. Why? Because it's a real relationship with a real person who has way more authority and way more wisdom and way more strength and way more might than you will ever have. Do you actually even desire a relationship with someone like that? That's a good question. Most of us, I mean, let's be honest, most of us are more comfortable with the idols. <laughs> we kind of know what they're going to ask us to do. After all, we made them. We kind of know what they're going to expect of us. We're kinda, we kind of know that they're actually going to kind of keep us kind of comfortable. After all, they're, they're ours to control. But that's not a real relationship with the living God. And that's what God desired with these people, and it's, it's what he desires with you. That's why he hates idolatry. And that brings me to the second point, which is the jealous love of God. 
Now, God is angry with these people. It, it's, if you read this passage, and you got to kind of read the whole passage, and we didn't get to it today, but it's, it's surprising how angry he is with these people. Look at verse 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me be alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them. It's an amazing thing that God says here. And then he says, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. It's an amazing thing that happens. God's ready to wipe them out. Now, as we're going to see, he does relent on the appeal of Moses. But a lot of judgment befalls on them. They've got to drink this gold-powdered water that um, was the result of the idolatry. 3,000 of the people die. There's a plague that comes upon them. There's a lot of, there's a lot of results of this. There's a lot of uh, consequences for their sin here. God is furious about this sin. Here he's saying, I'm going to wipe the whole people out. Why? Why is he so furious? Last week we looked at the Ten Commandments. And it's been famously said that four are vertical. You've heard this. You know, they're about worship. Six are horizontal. Now, I kind of said last week, I think five are vertical. I kind of think the parent one is actually more about worship and our relationship with God than kind of our relationship with others. But really, they're, they're all vertical in a sense. But those first five that I'm arguing are the more vertical commands, more about our relationship with, with God, they come with like a little extra personal instruction. Go back and read Exodus 20. I mean, the, the second half, it just says, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, right? It's just giving the command. The first half, <clears throat> it comes with all these kind of like personal notes from the Lord, right? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me, right? God does not hold him guiltless who takes the name of the Lord your God in vain. There's this, there's this little personal note. The Sabbath, right? The Lord rested. It's a personal note. It's personal with God. Therefore, we rest in the Sabbath. But the most personal one, I mean, read the Ten Commandments. The most personal one, the most pointed one is this second command. You shall not make a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. Now, you might hear this. I mean, let's be honest. You might hear this and think, huh, jealousy. That's kind of not the word that I think of with God. That doesn't seem to fit his holiness, his power. In fact, Oprah Winfrey, very famous. There's a famous interview with Oprah where she talks about being in a church service one time and hearing about how God was jealous and she basically says that's kind of when my faith in Christianity kind of changed. This idea bothered her, the idea of the jealousy of God. And, and it may bother you, but it's incredibly instructive. It's incredibly helpful. This is what God is like. This is what God is like. He, he wants, he desires a real relationship with you. Not just a not just a plastic, fake kind of surface level relationship. He, he wants a real, covenantal, deep relationship with you. He wants to be ours, and he wants us to be his. He is a jealous God. 
God doesn't want an open relationship with you. You know, sometimes you'll hear about Hollywood stars and they've decided to have an open marriage, right? You know what I'm talking about? You hear about this? Which basically means we'll be married, right? But we're not committed to one another. If you want to go be with another woman, if you want to go be with another man, that's okay. We've both agreed we're going to have this open marriage. Technically, we're married, but we're not really committed to one another. And I think this is the way a lot of people have a relationship with God or want to have a relationship with God. I want to be a Christian. I love some things. I mean, I love heaven. I mean, I love the idea of God loving us. But I kind of want an open relationship with Christianity with God. I want to change some things about Christianity. I want an open relationship, right? What the Bible has to say about sex. I mean, come on. What the Bible has to say about generosity. What the Bible has to say about humbling yourself all the time honoring others, what the Bible has to say about drunkenness and greed, making disciples, missions, evangelism. Like, <laughs> these things don't really jive with me, right? I, like, I love God. I want him to love me. But I just want an open relationship. We'll definitely be together at all the important holidays and at funerals. But I don't want to have to listen to these archaic commands of God all the time. I want an open relationship. I think that's the way a lot of people understand a relationship with God. God says, I'm jealous. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how you have relationships with me. I'm a jealous God. If you love me, if you serve me, if you're committed to me, I will bless you and I will bless you for generations. But if you're not faithful to me, I mean, look at what he says. He says, to those who hate me. That's what unfaithfulness means to the Lord. To those who hate me, I will visit that iniquity upon you for generations. Have you ever been cheated on? Have you ever been cheated on? You're in a relationship with someone, you trust them, you've, you know, you're giving your heart to them, you're, you're growing an intimacy toward them, and then all of a sudden, you realize that they've been with somebody else? Hey, I mean, you just almost say, well, just break up with me. You know, what, what is this? You know, how could you, how could you do the charade of faithfulness to me and commitment to me and not be committed to me? It, it, it's devastating if that's happened to you. I know that I'm, I don't mean to be pulling up wounds right now, but I want you to understand this. This is what God is saying here. That's, that's, not, what I'm, that's not what I'm after with you guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm not after an open relationship. I'm after a covenantal relationship. You know, in the book of Revelation, there's, there's letters to seven churches. And they're all very interesting and, and different, different things are happening in the different churches but the one that's always struck me is the last one. It's the church of Laodicea. And Jesus says to them, I know your works. I know that you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you would just be cold or hot, right? Just, would that you would just be something. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. They wanted an open relationship with God. And, and notice what they say. You know, you may say, well, you know, I'm pretty confident in my relationship. Well, I think a lot of people with an open relationship are pretty confident. What do they say? They say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing, right? I don't really need God every day. God has provided for me. God has taken care. I mean, I'm good. I'm, I'm rich. I'm prospered. I don't really need God every day. It's okay that I have these 
other idols, right? But then Jesus says to them, not realizing that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. And I just want to say to you, this is where idol worship will leave you. It will leave you so confident in your little idol. Oh, man, you'll be like, look at this little idol I have. It serves me so well. I'm wealthy. I've prospered. My life is good. What Jesus is saying here in Revelation 3 is that on the day of the Lord, that idol will leave you pitiable, blind, wretched, wrecked. You know, I mean, even now, some of us are saying, I'm so glad I don't have any idols in my life. Look, here's the deal. When the holiness of God really starts to shine on our hearts, it's incredibly revealing. And that brings us to the third point, which is the power of a redeemer. You know, Moses had left his guy in charge, Aaron, his brother, the priest, right? I mean, gosh, take care of him, Aaron. And Aaron had led them horribly. As soon as there was any account for Aaron, even though he led them into this sin, as soon as there was any account for Aaron, what does he do? He pushes it on the people. It wasn't me. You know these people, Moses, they're stiff-necked. Who's supposed to lead them? They brought me this gold, out come this calf. What's the guy to do? He's a horrible mediator for them. But notice how different Moses is. Look at verse 10. God wants to destroy the people. You know, before this, when God is telling Moses about the people, they turn their hearts to idols. It's interesting. God says, Moses, your people have turned their hearts over to idols. God doesn't even want to be identified with the people. Their sin is so painful to him. He's just told them, do not make the graven image. Dude, I will not hold you guilt, just don't make it. And there they are worshiping the graven image. And so he doesn't even want to identify. He wants to get as far away from these people as possible. And he says, Moses, look at what your people have done. God is so ready to be done with them. And he's ready to bless Moses. Look what he says in verse 10. God says, let me alone that my anger may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. Now, if this is me, okay, I mean, let's, let's put ourselves in Moses' seat here. If this is me, I'm kind of like, yeah, okay. I'll be Abraham now, right? I'll be the guy now. This is, okay, let's start over. Those people are pretty bad. Let's get going with me here. But that's not what Moses said. He's a good redeemer. He's a great redeemer. Moses implored the Lord and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them on the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? No, please, Lord, turn from your burning anger and relent this disaster against your people. Remember the covenant. Remember Abraham. Remember Isaac. Remember Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they will inherit it forever. And the Lord, upon hearing this, relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on, and notice what it says there, his people. What just happened here? God was angry at the people. He didn't want to be associated with them. 
And then this redeemer, Moses, who was in good with the Lord. Moses had a good standing with the Lord. God was about to bless him. But Moses took that blessing of God. He took his right standing before God. And rather than using it as something that would prop himself up, rather than taking it in order to be used for his own advantage, what did he do? He took the blessing of God and he stood between God and his people. He stood in between the wrath of God toward the sinful people. And on account of Moses, I want you to hear this, on account of Moses, what happens by the end? God once again identifies with his people. Now, in the end, first they were just your people, Moses. (laughs) But now in the end, no, once again, they're his people. There's peace that's made between the people and God because they have this great redeemer, Moses, who had a right standing with God, put himself in the way of God's wrath to save the people. And God didn't wipe them out. He was a great redeemer. But he wasn't a perfect redeemer. Later on in the story, we're going to see that actually there was a judgment. I mean, look at verse 27. Moses comes down and he says, The Lord said, Put your sword on your side. He's saying this to the priest. Go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. In that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. A brother, a companion. They had to die for the people's sin. And even that was incomplete. Later, a plague came, more disobedience, and, and, and people continued to fall. Moses was a great redeemer, which was good news for this stiff-necked people, but he wasn't a perfect Redeemer. In many cases, there was still a cost. There was still a price. And look, if this is all that we had, if all we had was people like Moses to redeem us, that would be good news. God wouldn't wipe us out, but it wouldn't be great news because we'd always have to live in fear of our own sin. But the good news that I have for you today, and the good news that I have for me, is that God has sent you and me an even greater Redeemer, even a perfect Redeemer, who has done such a complete and full redemptive work that now we can and forevermore stand in a place of peace with God through him. Jesus Christ, who had good standing with God. He was perfect. He never sinned. He was always holy. He stood in the way of God's wrath. He stood in between God's wrath and our sin. He took on the price of our sin. He was the one that, he was the brother. He was the companion that died. He endured God's wrath against our idolatry, not just one act of idolatry, all of our idolatry, all of our self-centeredness, all of our adultery, adulterous desires with the Lord to to have an open relationship with him and not be faithful to him. And because of this great sacrifice of Jesus, the Bible says, as we looked at last week, that now there is no condemnation that we have to dread. The author of Hebrews says in 1014, for a single offering, he has perfected us for all time. That's an amazing thing to believe, that the sacrifice of Jesus The atoning sacrifice of Jesus has made such an appeal to God that in him, even sinners like us who have sinned, who are sinning, and here's the deal, who will continue to sin, can have a place of peace, a restored relationship, be reunited to God for all time, past, present, 
and future. Jesus has paid the price of our sin. And now we can come into a perfect relationship with God, with nothing to fear. Remember I said earlier that you were all made to worship, but you don't worship (laughs) because God's too hard to understand, because God's too scary, because he doesn't seem close enough. Hear this gospel message. Now God doesn't have to be scary. God doesn't have to be hard to understand. In Christ, God has demonstrated that he loves you. In Christ, God has come close to you. In Christ, God has given you this redemption that you can understand, that you can take hold of, that Christ has died for the sins of all who look to him. Christ has died to redeem the world to himself, so now we can worship worship God not in fear, but in peace and in unity. Have you felt this kind of love? Have you come into this relationship Have you realized how deeply God has loved you in Christ, this this deep and covenantal and sacrificial love that God has extended to you? What idol promises this? Well, what idol has ever loved you like this? What kind of love is this? And so as we close, for the first time ever, we are going to take communion in this new building. And Jesus has given us this gift. It's an encouraging reminder that he's given his life for us. And this this reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, that that Jesus, our great redeemer, has stood in the way of God's wrath, that his body was given for us, that his blood was given for us. And we take this communion both as a reminder of the great sacrifice of love that we've been given in Christ Jesus and as a reminder of the day that we will be with the Lord and all will be made new and all made right, where we won't even desire to sin, where our hearts will be made restored, be fully restored by the love of Jesus. So if you're trusting Christ today, if he is your redeemer today, if you're looking to him, if you want to put all idols to death today, then the table is open to you. But I do want to say this. The Bible gives a very strong warning against taking this in an unholy way. And basically what it's saying here is, don't take this if you're an idolater. Don't, don't, don't take this if your heart's not for the Lord. Don't take this if you're not committed to the Lord. Don't take this if you're making room for idols. You may say, well, all of us are idolaters. All of us, all of us are prone to these other things. So can any of us take it? Here's, here's, here's how you can take it. It's repentance and faith. And what repentance means, it's not, that you're, it's not that your desires are always perfect. It's not that your desires are always as they should be. It's that you're, you're putting them to death. You're not making room for them. When, when the holiness of God comes to you, you don't just say, I threw it in the fire and out come a calf. No, you say, my heart is wicked. I need a redeemer. Is that true of your heart? Is it a repentant heart? Is it, is it a heart that realizes the great redemption that you do need? Is it a heart that's experienced the great redemption that God has provided for you? That's repentance and faith. And so if that's your heart today, if you're coming Before the Lord today, knowing that you need a great redemption and knowing that God has provided this great redemption, then the table is open to you. But I do want to say, if right now where you sit, you know that you're hiding idols. (laughs) There are idols that have a power over you that you're not willing to give up. Don't take this element today. Let it pass before you and actually let it be a warning to you (laughs) that, that there is something that's standing between you and God. And I pray that this would be the day, this would be the week that you, you get right before the Lord, that you do repent, that you look to Jesus, that you look to the only hope that you have, the great Redeemer that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, our hearts are so prone to wander. We're so prone to desire these tangible things that we can hold on to, that we can control. And a relationship with you, a real relationship with you, can be scary. It can be hard to understand. Um, it, It can totally put us out of control, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would, we would grow in our faith and trust, that we realize that you do love us, that you're for us, that you have shown us and demonstrated that love for us in Jesus, that while we were still sinners, while we were still idolaters, Christ has died for us to restore us, Lord, and to call us back into relationship with you, the living God. May this communion meal, Lord, be an encouraging reminder to us now May it increase our faith. May it increase our worship. May you use this meal to draw us close. I pray all this in Jesus' name.